This morning we will be in Romans, book of Romans, like we are every Sunday. But we are in chapter 11 now, beloved, so we're making progress. Lord willing, we'll cover 10 verses this morning, so... If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you should grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, and unfortunately, I don't know what page number you should turn to. What is it? 946. 946. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> so, in uh, your bulletins, you'll see there's an outline, as there is typically every week. The title of today's sermon is, Is, is God Done with Israel? Is God done with Israel? Is he through with Israel? That is basically the question that Paul puts forth at the beginning of chapter 11. Remember, 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans are primarily focused on the nation of Israel. Has God rejected his people? Is what Paul asked at the beginning of chapter 11. Why would he ask such a question? Well, in chapter 10 of Romans, we see that Paul not only uh, draws his reader's attention to Israel's continual unbelief or their rejection of the gospel. And remember, the rejection of the gospel is ultimately the rejection of a person, right? It's the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not just the rejection of some facts. It's the rejection of the Son of God. But Paul also, in Romans uh, chapter 10, attributes their rejection or their unbelief, he attributes it to their defiant hearts, their defiant hearts. Paul made it clear that Israel's unbelief was not due to a lack of opportunity to hear or the ability to understand the gospel. We covered this already in chapter 10, but rather it was a matter of willful disobedience, willful disobedience. And that's the same reason primarily that people reject the gospel today, willful disobedience. They're unwilling. It's a moral issue. They will not surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospel of John speaks this way about the nation of Israel, and you've probably heard these verses before. It says this in in John 1.11, He, that is Jesus Christ, came to his own, who's his own? The Jewish people. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's like going to your own family, and they just, they reject you. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it in Acts chapter 3, Israel denied, this is what he says when he's preaching to them, Israel denied the holy and righteous one and killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. That's what Israel did, beloved. So should we conclude then that God is done with Israel, that he is through with the nation? I mean, he would certainly have every reason to be. For throughout Israel's history, they have repeatedly proven to be a defiant and stubborn people. But here's the thing. God has not only made particular promises to this nation that have not yet been fulfilled. Okay, that's the first thing. So, for instance, the promise that this nation would be restored in all of its glory in a future earthly kingdom And that promise has not yet occurred. It has not been fulfilled. Okay, so that's the first thing. And and one of the reasons it hasn't been fulfilled is they killed their king. They murdered their king. But God also swore that he would never forsake this nation. He would never forsake this nation. This truth is found in many places in the scriptures. I I hope you're going through the the yearly reading schedule or some yearly reading schedule, but you're reading through the Old Testament and the New Testament a little bit every day. You're going to hear this over and over again, God's commitment to this 
nation, but here are just a few. In Psalm 94, 14, this is what it says, For the Lord, God, Yahweh, will not forsake his people. No exception clause, beloved, unless they do this. No, will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. That's how he looks at Israel. It's his heritage. How about 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22? For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great, great name's sake. Just don't miss that, beloved. He will not forsake his people for his own name's sake. Not necessarily for them. It's for him that he will not do it. For his own glory, he will not forsake his people, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And again, the context is the nation of Israel. So listen, just listen. If God is done with Israel, if he is through with them, as some throughout history have mistakenly thought, if he has utterly rejected them, then, beloved, we are ultimately left with a God that can't really be trusted. Who is not faithful. Who doesn't or can't keep his promises. You understand? Maybe that's just the issue. Maybe God meant well. He was sincere in everything he said. He really wanted to fulfill these promises to these people, but man, These people are stiff-necked and rebellious. I send them my own son and they kill him. What am I going to do? Is that what it is? God's just like at the mercy of sinful humanity? I don't think so, beloved. That's not the way the Bible describes God. Is it that he won't keep his promises? If that's the case, beloved, what kind of God is it that we have? Let me put it this way. If God has rejected Israel, then that means his promises can fail. That's what it means. And if his promises to Israel fail, then how can we know with any certainty that his promises to us as Christians will not fail as well? We can't. We can't. So you might think that these chapters in Romans concerning Israel are irrelevant to your life. You might think that. I hope you understand that they are very relevant to us. Very relevant to us. Can we trust God to do as he promises? Can we? That's what's at stake. Well, no. We can't if he won't or can't keep his promises to Israel. That's the bottom line. So the question Paul asked at the beginning of chapter 11 is critical, is, is very important for us to look at and to understand. Okay? Let's read the text. That's all introduction. Beginning with verse 1, we'll read through the first 10 verses. Paul says this as he introduces chapter 11. I ask then, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Quoting him, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and and I am alone, alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's some heavy stuff, beloved. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at simply three reasons, three reasons from the text that confirm that God is not done with Israel so that we might be assured of his trustworthiness and faithfulness. It's that simple this morning. You ready? Okay. The first reason is God saved Paul. Okay? He saved Paul, and Paul is an Israelite. We'll look at this. The second is God foreknew the nation of Israel. These are all reasons that confirm to us that God is not through with this nation. And third, God has reserved a remnant of believing Israelites. And we'll explain each one as we go along. Now, Paul starts off chapter 11 by uh, not only asking, but also answering his own question, right? This is his practice. He does this throughout the book of Romans. Paul asks, has God rejected his people? And Paul answers, what? By no means, absolutely not, is just another way to get at that. No way. Now, who are the people to whom Paul refers? Well, what's that? Israel, right. I've already said it's the nation of Israel. We know that because the context makes that clear. If we're just reading the passage, if we're reading chapter 10, we know he's talking about Israel. In fact, as I mentioned at the end of chapter 10, Right at the end, right before the beginning of chapter 11, this is what God said about Israel. It says this, of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. But despite her disobedience, despite her rejection of Jesus Christ, despite her unwillingness to believe the gospel, Paul asserts at the beginning of chapter 11 that God is not done with these people. He's not done with this nation. Then Paul goes on to explain and begins to do that by pointing out the fact, very simply, that he himself is an Israelite. And that brings me to the first reason that confirms to us that God is not done with Israel, and that is, as I said, God saved Paul, and Paul is an Israelite. So let's look at it. Let's, let's uh, dig into this a little bit. He says this. Look back at verse 1. I asked, then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So listen, Paul is basically saying this, I am living proof that God has not rejected or abandoned his people. You can just consider me, consider my testimony. And Paul does this by pointing out that he himself is an Israelite. That means that he is part of the nation of Israel. He goes on, he is a descendant of Abraham. Who's Abraham? He is the father of the Jewish nation, right? Okay? More specifically now, Paul says he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. These tribes came from the 12 sons of Israel, Israel being the name that God gave to Jacob, their father. And you can find that in Genesis 32, 28. So maybe you've thought Israel is just the name that God gave to the nation. Israel is the name that God gave to the father that birthed the 12 sons that represent the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel, okay? So how does the fact of Paul's Jewishness prove, because that's basically what he's establishing, man, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite. How does it prove that God has not rejected his people or the nation of Israel? Well, you may already know this, but God... Save Paul. He saved Paul. Before he became a Christian, though, before Paul repented and embraced Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior by faith, you know what he did? He made it his personal business to oppose the name of Jesus. <laughs> and he relentlessly persecuted 
his followers or the followers of Jesus Christ. That Paul's own words, okay? Acts chapter 26, verse 9 and, and 10 and 11. He says this when he's giving his testimony, he's recounting his story. I myself was convinced, at least he used to be, that I ought to do many things in imposing, opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, he's talking about Christians, beloved, after receiving authority from the chief priest, he's talking about the religious leadership of Israel. You understand? So they've given him authority to go get them. Go get those Christians. Go punish them. But when they were put to death, and in some cases that was true as well, I cast my vote against them. So he's, he's part of this whole mess. Do you understand? This is Paul. Well, it was Saul before he became Paul, before he got saved. And verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, deny Christ, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I went, as, I went wherever I had to go. I hunted them down. That's Paul. So Paul, an Israelite, a Jew, was one of the greatest Christ-rejecting Jews among his people. He not only refused to believe, but he took it a step further and he punished those who did. And yet, in spite of all that, God didn't forsake him. God didn't forsake him. He didn't reject him. But he reached out and saved him. He saved him. He made him the apostle to the Gentiles. That's us. I mean, that's, it's just unbelievable the way God does things. By God's saving grace, Paul became a Christian. Just a side note, beloved. No one, that just says to us loud and clear, no one is beyond the saving grace of God. If God determines to save someone, they're going to get saved, all right? When he works to bring someone to Christ, it's going to happen. And this is why we, we I don't care how messed up they are. This guy was killing Christians. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it can get worse than that. You can't. And yet God saved him. So then in light of what God did with Paul, in light of that, how can anyone say then that God is done or finished with Israel or his people? That's really just, that's kind of the point. That's Paul's point. How can you say he's done? He saved me. Just remember, I'm an Israelite. Martin Luther, in making, uh, going through this text, the great reformer, he made this comment concerning this text. He said this, had God cast away his people, then above all, he would have cast away the apostle Paul who had opposed him with all his might. And yet he didn't. He didn't. Affirming the fact that God is not through with this nation. He's not done with them. We might think he should be, beloved. But if that's the case, then he should have been done with the Gentiles a long time ago. The second reason that affirms that God is not done with Israel is the fact that it was God, it was God who foreknew the nation. Right? Which is the second point in your outline. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Look back at the text. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Another translation of the Bible puts that verse this way. God didn't turn his back on his people. After all, he chose them. <laughs> you get it? You get it? Well, if not, we're going to look at it closer. Verse 1, Paul asks, has God rejected his people? And he immediately rejects that idea, right? By no means, absolutely not. Now, in verse 2, he asserts positively what he denied in verse 1. God has not rejected his people. And then he adds a reason for his assertion. The reason being that God foreknew them, or that is to say, God foreknew the nation of Israel. Now, 
Do you remember that word foreknew? You might. We covered it before in Romans. We covered it in chapter 8. We looked at that word foreknew. And in that context, it was in the context of the salvation of individuals, of individuals. And I explained to you then that the few other places this word is used in the New Testament, uh, that is, with God as the subject, whether it be a verb or a noun, so foreknew or foreknowledge, the few other places we find it in the New Testament, it is clear in those places that it doesn't simply mean that God knows something in advance or has previous knowledge of something for new. It's not that. It's not limited to that. But rather, it is this. It is a matter of him choosing or determining beforehand or selecting in advance. That's what it means. That's what it means. Now, in the context of Romans 11, Paul is not using the word foreknew in relation to God's choice or selection of individuals, as he does in chapter 8, but rather, he is using it in relation to the nation of Israel as a whole, as a whole, or to say it another way, God's foreknowledge here in Romans 11 does not relate specifically to certain individuals as it does in Romans 8, but rather to the nation or Jewish people as a whole, as a whole. Okay, I hope you can um, understand that distinction because it's an important one. So the bottom line is this. The idea then that the omniscient God, the all-knowing God, would or could reject the nation that he chose, (laughs) that he foreknew, a nation that he determined beforehand to forever make his own, is ridiculous. It's that simple. It's ridiculous. It flies in the face of logic. It would require God to basically deny himself. Deny himself. Such a thing is is simply not possible, beloved. One writer says this, commenting, for God to reject his people would require repudiation or denial of his deliberate unilateral, that means he made the decision on his own, according to his own plans and purposes. He wasn't persuaded. He wasn't forced. It was his decision. But if, if God's rejecting his people would require denial of his deliberate, unilateral choice of Israel, the inference is that God could not do such a thing. That's the bottom line. That's why he says, God has not rejected his people He foreknew them. Hello. That's kind of the idea. All right? Third reason Paul gives for proof that God is not through with Israel is found in the concept of a remnant, of a remnant. And we've also looked at this previously. And that brings us to, uh, before in Romans, and that brings us to the third point in the outline. God has reserved a remnant of believing Israelites. What's a remnant? You guys remember? Yeah, like a small, small portion, so just a piece, small piece, right? People go in and buy remnants of carpet. They're not getting all the carpet. They're just getting some of it, a small piece of it. So here we go. The believing remnant of Israelites, of which Paul is a part, right? He's a part of that remnant, of that believing remnant, is evidence of God's continuing concern and care for Israel, It's evidence, and it makes it clear that he has not totally rejected them. He is not done with this nation. Paul begins, to support that, he begins by providing biblical support, first, for the concept of remnant, or a remnant, by reminding his readers about a story concerning the prophet Elijah. Elijah. Look back at verse 2 again, beginning with the second sentence of verse 2. Paul says this, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. (laughs) 
And here it is. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. And then Paul says, okay, but what is God's reply to him? What does God say back? You're right. You're only one, man. This nation, I'm done with these people. He says, watch this closely. He says, I, who's I? God. I have kept for who? Myself. I, God, have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. All right, so let's talk about this in case you're not familiar with the story. Keep doing your Bible reading and you'll get there, okay? The story is told in 1 Kings. Specifically, this section right here is in chapter 19, but you can just read uh, 17, 18, 19, all that section. It was during a period in Israel's history, during this time, of flagrant apostasy. Flagrant apostasy. What is that? What is that? The nation had turned their back on their God, okay? That's the bottom line. It was during the reign of Ahab. Ahab was a weak and wicked king of Israel. His queen, maybe you'll remember this name, Jezebel. Don't ever name your daughter Jezebel. Gosh, I hope no one has a daughter named Jezebel in here. Maybe you're redeeming the name. So yeah, maybe you can redeem it. By, uh, but Jezebel was a bad, 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 bad woman. A bad woman. Uh, she was an enemy, an enemy of God's prophets. She promoted Baal worship throughout the land of Israel. And that's why I said the king was weak, because he, I mean, she, was like co, she was co-running the place, man. Baal, if you're not familiar with that, was the name of the god that uh, was worshipped in ancient Canaan and is considered by the Canaanites to be the most uh, powerful of all gods, small g. We know there's only one God, right? That's what made Israel stand out. There is one God, period, right? But the pagans and surrounding nations, they had, all, they had a whole plethora of gods. But Baal was the man large and in charge, according to them. And so she promoted this nonsense. And with Baal worship went a lot of very terrible, nasty, disgusting things. Okay? Elijah had confronted the king. And he ended up slaughtering the prophets of... I, I'm, I know I'm laughing, but um, you've got to read the story because it's a really cool story, but I'm not going to tell you. He slaughters them. He slaughters all the prophets of Baal. It was righteous slaughter, beloved. It was a righteous slaughter. So Ahab, he runs back and tells his wife, you're not going to believe what Elijah did. I mean, you've got to read the story because it's just, it's humorous, but it's, anyway. So he tells her, she's like, what? Right? So she threatens Elijah's life. And that's no small threat because this woman, like I said, she had sought out the prophets uh, of God and, and had seen their demise before. So Elijah, even though he had been, he had conquered and, and God was working through him, he panicked, he panicked, he and he took off. He fled. He went, he went a long ways away. He fled for a while, and he hid in a cave. It was in this cave that he complained to God that he was the only faithful man left in Israel. Because that's what it, that's what it appeared, that, that's how it appeared, beloved, to, to him. In that setting, God tells him that he had kept for himself 7,000 men or believers from among the multitude of faithless ones in Israel. Because they had all departed. They, they had apostatized. They, all, they, absor- they just went all in on Baal worship, man. So, it, yeah, it's, like, it's just like how sometimes I feel within the United States. I feel like, man, are we the only, you know, there's very few left. Like real Christians, right? I kind of feel that way. We're not that far gone yet, but man, sometimes it feels that way. And while Elijah thought it was over for Israel, God assured him then that, that it was not. Because in spite of the nation's apostasy, right? This is the key. In spite of that, in spite of what was going on, God had preserved for himself a remnant of true believers. 
That's the story. That's the point. Paul then compares Elijah's situation to the situation in Paul's day. Look back at the text. Romans chapter 11, verse 5. After saying that, Paul then says, so too, just like that, at the present time, now today, in our history, the first century, where Paul was writing, there is a remnant, there is a remnant chosen, huh? don't miss this, chosen by grace, chosen by grace. What is the point? If God would not forsake Israel in Elijah's day for their gross apostasy, but rather continued to care for his people, God's chosen nation, as evidenced by the preservation of a remnant of true believers, then surely the presence of Jewish believers or Christians in Paul's day Although a relatively small number, right, compared to how many Jews had rejected the gospel, it was certainly small, beloved. But that, Paul is saying, is proof that God has not forsaken Israel in Paul's day either. That's that's it. God in his faithfulness, beloved, continues to preserve a remnant of believing Jews from among the nation of Israel to this day. Small, but believing. But don't miss the fact, don't miss this, I said it earlier, don't miss the fact that Paul says this believing remnant is what? Chosen by grace, chosen by grace. That is, listen, that is, their existence is entirely a matter of God's grace. God's grace. They believed and embraced the gospel because God had mercy on them. And he rescued them from a rebellious and disobedient nation who had refused to embrace Jesus Christ. Huh? Well, that would be true of you as well, beloved, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. He has rescued you from a bunch of pagan Gentiles for his own glory and purposes. You have been chosen by grace. See, listen, it wasn't that. You might read this, the story about, hey, uh... God says to Elijah, hey, don't worry, man. I was looking around for a while, and I was having a hard time finding some guys, but I found 7,000, and uh, man, they're loyal. They haven't bowed the knee to Baal, right? Don't make the mistake and think that's what God is saying, because he doesn't. I have kept for myself. I have kept for myself. It wasn't that the remnant was better, better, whether it was in Elijah's day or in Paul's day. It wasn't that they were better or more worthy than the rest. It doesn't say that. Hey, I found some good boys. You know, I found some good guys. They haven't. He doesn't say that. But rather, their redeemed status was entirely a matter of God's undeserved and unmerited favor. We've talked about that, right? That's grace, beloved undeserved and unmerited. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. God just chose them. And having mentioned grace at the end of verse 5, Paul takes the opportunity to just drive home the truth of grace because he just can't help himself. So look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, not like if it is, you know, it is, and since it is, it's basically what he's saying, since it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul insists that grace, this is all he's saying, he's insisting that grace absolutely excludes works or human effort. Excludes works or human effort. Beloved, Here it is. There is absolutely no room in God's plan for personal merit. There's no room for it. God's salvation is entirely a matter of grace. Of grace. 
Okay, you with me so far? These remaining verses, 7 through 10, what Paul does now is he simply, because we've covered the points, but now he applies this remnant theology, this concept of the remnant, he applies it specifically now to the facts of his own day and experience, and he draws particular attention to those who were not part of the remnant. They were not part of the remnant, those who were not chosen by grace. Let's look at it. What then? Verse 7, chapter 11. Look back at the text after he says what he says. What then? Israel, this nation, failed to obtain what it was seeking. Within that nation, there is a remnant chosen by grace, the elect. The elect obtained it, but the rest of the nation, they were hardened. They were hardened. Okay, let's break it down. What was Israel seeking that it failed to obtain? I'll answer it. We looked at this in Romans 10. They were seeking righteousness. Or let me say it this way. They were seeking a right standing before God. Okay, do you remember that? We went through that in Romans 10. The the only problem is, is, We know they failed to obtain it. We were told that already in chapter 10. Why? Why did they fail to obtain it? Because they sought it their own way. Right? Do you remember that? Because they're a contrary people. They don't, and whenever I say this, don't, don't, please in your mind, don't start to think that you're better than the Jewish people. Don't start to think that. Paul's going to deal with that in uh, further on as we get into chapter 11. But if anything, they are just a picture of humanity. We're a contrary, rebellious people too. If it weren't for Christ and his work in our lives, we'd be in hell, beloved. That's where we'd be headed and that's where we'd end up. So they were seeking righteousness or a right standing before God, but they failed to obtain it. Why? Because they sought it their own way, which is the wrong way, which was through self-effort or personal merit. Hey, anybody still doing that today? Huh? Every world religion, beloved, outside of the one true religion, which is Christianity, is doing that exact same thing. It may have a different name. It may have some different flares to it, different you know, things going on. But bottom line, they're doing this thing. They're trying to seek a right standing before God through personal effort or personal merit. And the only way we can be made right with God, beloved, is how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. But the vast majority of Israel refused to believe the gospel. However, the elect of Israel, or those chosen by grace, the believing remnant of Israel, they obtained. They obtained a right standing with God. How? Because they work real hard at it? Because they finally got it just right, all the things they were supposed to do? No, because... They heard the gospel, and by God's grace, they believed it. They believed it. They embraced the saving message concerning Jesus Christ the Lord. And by that, and only through that, they obtained a right standing with God, something the rest of the nation had failed to obtain because they were seeking it the wrong way. And Paul says the rest were hardened. The rest were hardened. Concerning this hardening, Paul now quotes from the Old Testament in verses 8 and 9, basically to confirm the hardening of Israel by the Old Testament Scriptures and describe Israel's miserable spiritual condition. Look back at the text. He just said the rest were hardened. Now, explaining further, in verse 8, Paul says, As it is written... As it is written. So he's taking some, a pass primarily from Deuteronomy 29.4, and this first line coming from Isaiah 29.10. God, uh, who did this, beloved? Yeah, God. God gave them a spirit of stupor. You know what that is? That's like a loss of uh, spiritual sensitivity, basically a spiritual drowsiness. Hmm? Not, they're not concerned about uh, the true things of God. 
That's what he gave him. He gave him eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Beloved, that's uh, as of right now, 2015, that's still the truth concerning the nation of Israel. Now, you should understand this hardening as a uh, judicial hardening, not jujitsu. Judicial. Um, what does that mean? It means, it just means this, that this hardening is really God giving people uh, over or up to their own stubbornness. It's a punishment deserved. He's giving people over to their, to their own stubbornness. It's an earned uh, reaction from God. One writer says this concerning God's hardening of the Jews. Maybe this will help you. I found it helpful. God's hardening of the Jews was punishment for their sins. Do you, do you remember what I told you? Do you remember what Paul says in, at the end of Romans chapter 10? All day long, God says of Israel, he has held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. From the, the inception of the nation, it wasn't long before they continued to rebel against their God, continuing to worship other gods, continuing to commit spiritual adultery against God, right? And he would rescue them and save them, and yet, They'd be good for like a little, little while. That's it. And then go right back to their slop. God's, uh, and get this, beloved, get this. The Messiah comes just as God had promised, right? He comes. God, it was in their scriptures. It was foretold. He sends them. He gives them their redeemer, their king. Do they embrace him? They kill him, okay? God's hardening of the Jews, this writer says, was punishment for their sins. God did it as retribution to them. We're going to see that. Okay, that's in 11.9, the next verse. Retribution, because of their disobedient hard hearts, as referenced in chapter 10, verse 21, and unbelief. When we get to a little bit further in chapter 11, verse 20, you'll see that Paul says they were cut off. They were cut off for their unbelief. Their willful refusal to embrace the gospel that they understood and that they had plenty of opportunity to hear. Israel had been given much light. So we see that in chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, right? They had, they had the covenants. They had the word of God. They had God explaining all of his plans and purposes to them. These were the people of God. No other nation had these kind of privileges. They had much light, but they stubbornly refused to respond to it. See, people think that if God you know, came into a sinner's life and just kind of showed himself to them, that they would immediately just, oh, look, now I get it, and they would respond in wholehearted obedience. I don't think so, beloved, because that's the whole picture of Israel. God couldn't have been more involved with the people than he was with the nation of Israel, and still... Still, they spurned him. You see, if anything, Israel just shows us how messed up we are, how depraved sinners are. So God said in effect, still reading the quote, if you refuse to see, huh? If you refuse to see, I'll confirm that choice. Be blind. If you refuse to hear, be deaf. That's judicial hardening. And the writer goes on to say, how terrifying to have God pronounce such judgments against you. Huh? Uh, This is why you come on Sundays, and I've said this before, there are certainly people here, I just, not because I know, because I have some special knowledge, but I'm betting that there are people here who have yet to give their lives to Jesus Christ. And so every week, they reject, they reject, they reject. How long is that going to go on before God says, okay, I'll leave you in that state? See, this is not, this, we're not playing here. God's not playing. This is serious. 
So he says, and it stems in the case of the Jews and of many other religious people, their unwillingness from seeking to be righteous by their own works. That was the issue, beloved. They wanted to stand before God based on their own effort. huh? And what is that? That goes to the heart, the core of man's sin, and that is his pride. That is his pride. God gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. Verses 9 and 10, then, Paul quotes David's words. Listen, it gets even harder, okay? He quotes David's words in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, uh, specifically verses 22 and 23. In it, David prays, in that section, David prays that God, King David, that God would bring disaster upon those who were persecuting him, upon his enemies, uh, who were not just David's enemies, but were truly, if you read the psalm, they were enemies of God. They were enemies of God, okay? So this is righteous indignation. Now let's read it, uh, verses 9 and 10. And David says, so Paul's still talking about this hardening, okay? And he's quoting from the Old Testament. And David says, to remind his readers, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution There it is. There's that word, retribution. What is that? That's punishment for something someone has done. Okay? It's deserved. It's earned. So let it become a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. All right. The imagery here, that is, uh, their table becoming a snare and a trap and the bending of their backs. I'm just going to tell you, Uh, It's not easy to interpret, and I have read many different suggestions by Bible commentators as to what this imagery might specifically mean. And I'm not going to tell you what it means because I don't know. I don't know exactly what it means, and I'm not so convinced by the options, okay? But while the details specifically of what David was communicating in his time might not be clear. The general idea is very clear. It is very clear. David is asking, however it works itself out exactly, David is asking that disaster would come upon his enemies. You get that? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to read that and not see that, okay? Or however, I may have messed up what I just said, but you, you, you can see that right there. It's disaster would come upon his enemies. He is asking that they would get what is coming to them or receive the punishment they deserve. You with me? All right. Here's a quote from a commentator concerning this text then. What David prayed would happen to his persecutors, Paul suggests God has brought upon those Jews who have resisted the gospel. It's that simple. Disaster, spiritual disaster, beloved, has come upon the nation of Israel for their disobedience, for their rejection of Christ, for their unwillingness to embrace the gospel. They've been hardened. Now, while this judicial hardening of Israel may be dismal, and it is, and deserved, and it is. By the way, the elect who obtained what they were seeking, that is a righteous standing before God, chosen by grace, did they deserve that? No. 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 God would be just to damn all. He would be just to damn all. The fact that he saves any is a matter of his grace. And his sovereign plan. So while the judicial hardening of Israel may be dismal and deserved, here's another question. Is it permanent? It's not. It's not permanent. We'll get there. Romans chapter 11. And again, we're talking about the nation, beloved. So as time goes by, right? There will be, at some point in history, a time when God removes this hardening from his people. There will be a great spiritual awakening among the nation. They will 
Look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn. They will mourn. They will cry. They will repent and they will turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Paul speaking to Gentiles. I, uh, we'll get there. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I'm not going to explain. I, I, I'm dying to, but I'm going to stop and not do it. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's a future reality, beloved. As it is written, the deliverer, who's that? That's Jesus Christ. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is a reference to Israel, beloved. Huh? And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Beloved, God is not done with Israel. Okay? He's not. Every promise he has made to the nation that he foreknew will be fulfilled according to his perfect plan and his timetable. And that is good news indeed because you know what that means? That means Christians, as Christians, that we can fully rely then on the incredible promises that God has made to us. We can rely on them. God will never forsake us. He will never forsake us. He will get us to the finish line. Do you remember when we talked about that in Romans 8? All he is called, right? He's justified, right? But at the end of this, this chain reaction of salvation, there's the hope, there's the promise of glorification, right? You're going to get there. It may not look, there will be days, weeks, where you look like, I don't think so. I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I don't, this is not working. God's like, no, I'm going to get you there. I made a promise. I called you. I chose you. I predestined you for this very purpose that you would be conformed to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. And I keep my promises. You should know that because I have not given up on this nation that I chose. I am not through with them, but I am following through with every single one of the promises I have made to them. I will bring about all that I have for them and have said I would accomplish in that nation. He will do all that he has promised. So, beloved, what he started, he will finish. What he started with us, he will finish. What he started with the nation of Israel, he hasn't like, oh, okay, all right, I'm done. I am done, right? like a jilted uh, girlfriend or boyfriend who just broke up. I'm done with you, you know? That's not God, beloved. I've had enough of you. I don't know. I can't take anymore. I am so glad that's not our God, right? And that is, that is more than made clear in how he has dealt with and continues to deal with and will deal with with his chosen nation, Israel. 